What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Hey, Barbie. Yeah. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned. Just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and planned choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Bye. As it turned out, everybody stopped by the Barbie party and they had so much fun. Most of them went to the Oppenheimer party, too. <laughs> Good movie. Lousy party. This week, we've got reviews of the entire Barbenheimer phenomenon, Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, ahead on Film Spotty. Welcome to Film Spotting. You know, Josh, it seems like we both have very short-term memories these days, but in all the time we've been doing this show, can you remember a weekend where there was so much buzz about movies that were opening? I didn't feel like I got to experience that much myself, and I know you went to a press screening of at least one of these films, Barbie. I saw Barbie in a small-town Iowa theater, about 100 people, mostly full, but only about 100 seats, and then I saw Oppenheimer on a Monday morning at the Multiplex, and there were maybe 15 to 20 people there. So, you know, I wasn't out there engaging on social media, sharing my pics from the Barbie plastic case right. or anything like that. <laughs> it was. I would have loved pretty, to have seen that. It was a pretty typical movie-going weekend for me, but how did you guys celebrate Barbenheimer at the Larson household? Man, yeah, I actually did see both of these at press screenings, so a little bit ahead of the curve. Um, luckily, Debbie got to go with me to Barbie and Oppenheimer. I was on my own. I don't remember. I don't remember two movies opening at the same time with this level of anticipation and excitement. I think that's the distinction, and I certainly don't recall anything like what I've heard so many people doing, and what my high school daughter is actually doing right now as we're recording this. Went with a friend. Stole my, you know, dark gray corduroy sports jacket to wear to see Oppenheimer. Then they're <laughs> going to change in the bathroom of the theater into their pink skirts, shirts, whatever they got going on okay, and go so right into Barbie. Cosplaying Barbie and Oppenheimer? Yeah. Yeah. This is a thing, Adam. This is a thing. And, and uh, my closet is taking a hit as a result. That That jacket better come back because it's one of my favorites. Better come back in good shape. Have you ever felt older in your life than oh, gosh. You just recounted that story for me? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a daily occurrence, you know, something making me feel old. I think we need to embrace this and make film spotting a video show. Mm. And we'll dress up in costume every time. I mean, so many opportunities there. Well, we are just a couple of Kens here, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about Barbie. I mean, come on, Adam, we're both Allens. We know it. Ouch. When my heart breaks. Some things have been happening that might be related. When my world shakes. Cold shower. Ooh. Falling off my roof. Ah! And my heels are on the ground. <gasps> what do I have to do? You have to go to the real world. You can go back to your regular life, or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one, the high heel. You have to want to know, okay? Do it again. Closer, I am 
Besides opening the same day and being written and directed by two formidable filmmakers, Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer have little in common in subject and certainly in style. I can't recall a single splash of pink, Josh, or any pastel save Killian Murphy's icy blue eyes in the various classrooms where Robert Oppenheimer studied and taught quantum physics or around the grounds of Los Alamos where there are beautiful sunsets, but decidedly no beach for Ryan Gosling and the other Kens to frolic around on. I'll go so far as to say there is no frolicking whatsoever in Oppenheimer land, reflecting an imbalance, child's toy, atomic bomb, that managed to capture moviegoers' imaginations to the tune of the fourth largest box office weekend ever. And yet, if most audiences don't come into, and probably away from, each film conflicted about the respective title characters and their complicated legacies, the directors themselves definitely did. I don't suspect that Mattel co-founder Ruth Handler was haunted by her invention to the degree Oppenheimer was, by her role in, many have argued, empowering patriarchy by setting unrealistic expectations for female beauty, but the woman making a movie about Handler's creation is openly reckoning with the impact of 60 years of young girls playing with and having their notions of femininity shaped by Barbie, for better or for worse. Just as the man making a movie about Oppenheimer is reckoning with the moral morass of creating the world's most destructive weapon and being the scientist who, as Kenneth Branagh's Niels Bohr asserts, gave them the power to destroy themselves. To what degree either of these figures should be celebrated, or more appropriately to Barbie, promoted, is a crucial question underlying both efforts. We'll get to Nolan and his embodiment of existential distress later in the show. First, Josh... Tell me how successfully you think Gerwig and Margot Robbie, officially labeled stereotypical Barbie, navigated this tricky terrain. You don't have the benefit of being a woman yourself. However, you've been married to one for quite a while and did raise two daughters. So did Gerwig, with co-writer Noah Baumbach, make her case? Did she challenge any prevailing ideas you had and redeem this fraught icon? as Senior Lecturer of Cultural Studies at the University of Melbourne, Hannah McCann, described Barbie to NBCNews.com. Or is asking Gerwig to thoroughly redeem Barbie while thoroughly entertaining viewers also serving to empower the patriarchy by setting unrealistic expectations on a female director? Yeah, I think that question and variations on it are what so many of us brought into Barbie, and it was to my great surprise and ultimate relief that I don't think it was the ultimate project Gerwig was interested in. And that's not to say that she set all of those things aside. I think this movie, as hilarious as it is, as fast moving as it is, as musical as it is, wrestles with all of those things. It takes the can of worms, rips it open and watches everything wriggle around and directly addresses them. You touched on so many of these elements already, but the fact that, you know, you could argue as the opening moments of this movie does that 2001 riff, which I find incredibly amusing, that the first Barbies were empowering to little girls who were otherwise stuck with baby dolls and forced into the roles of mother when they wanted to play and nothing else. This movie makes that case. You could argue that in the ensuing years of Barbie, were completely problematic in terms of female body image. And we get a teenage character here mm -hmm. eviscerating Margot Robbie's Barbie for doing just that. So we get that. The corporate angle, we get that with this whole subplot involving Will Ferrell's company, Mattel's CEO. 
And so this isn't a Barbie that ignores all of those complicating issues, but it's also a Barbie that isn't really all that interested in solving them. And I think that's to the film's credit, because if this had come out as some sort of clear manifesto on how we should all think about Barbie now, it is 2023. This is it. Let's get Barbie right. A, I don't think that would be that interesting. B, it would not please 80% of the universe because it would only have the 20% or so who agree with it. And we would have even more debates. Instead, what this Barbie seems to me is Greta Gerwig herself spilling out onto the screen with incredible wit, visual splendor, um, using stars to the best of their capabilities, spilling out all of her own complicated feelings about Barbie and saying, let's talk about this. Let's have a party where we can talk about this. And that is what Barbie felt like to me. This feels like a movie. I've been describing it to people. It's not a problem that is solved. It's an experience that is being shared. It's being shared by Gerwig more intimately, as you said, surely with women who grew up with Barbies um, than I could ever experience. But I did still pick up on the movie not trying to dodge these questions, but also not trying to define the answers. And I think that's why the movie is possibly going to get some pushback. We don't live in that sort of age, right? We live in a sort of age where, you know, we tend to want to be self-righteous about our pop culture and draw a line and decide what pop culture is correct, what is incorrect, what is dated, what is out of step of, of the times, what is ahead of the times and knows how we should be living. And sometimes those, you know, message movies can be good and valuable. Uh, but in this case, I think we get a better experience by just addressing them in the way that Gerwig did. I think this is a, an incredible film um, and way more complicated than I ever expected by being in some ways simpler than I expected. I think that's all very well put. And as with most setup questions, of course, it was really a trick question because it's absurd to think that one movie or one essay or one book or frankly, any number of them would put to rest something that has been debated for decades and has so many paradoxes and smart perspectives to consider. I agree with you. There isn't a solution here. The only do you feel right like that answer. was the expectation, though? I Maybe. sort of feel like that was the expectation I do for too. this movie. I do, too. And the only right answer isn't to surmise, in my opinion, isn't to surmise that Barbie is a purely positive icon or a purely negative one. It is to understand that she is a fraught one. And the only responsibility, then, that a smart director has is to, as you said, address that and to investigate that. And I do think yes. Gerwig truly does investigate that, even though that makes it sound clinical and dry. There's nothing clinical and dry about this film. I will say that I don't think it's unreasonably cynical to acknowledge that no matter how smart of a director Gerwig is or how pure of an artist she is, there is still a very large hand on the scale on the side of Barbie being a force for good. Her corporate overlords at Mattel, of course. Yes. And I've seen I've seen a lot of comments on social media from people saying things like, I can't believe she got away with that, that <laughs> Mattel let her do that. Like she did something totally subversive and scathing. And my response is kind of. I think yeah. that that takedown, that evisceration that you mentioned by Ariana Greenblatt, that's 
the thing that comes closest. There's also one other storyline I'll save right now that I'll throw in to that mix that I haven't seen other people talk about for some reason. So maybe I'm just getting it wrong, but I don't believe anyone at Mattel is losing any sleep over the way they indirectly are portrayed on screen or how Barbie is portrayed. Even setting aside, even setting aside the piles of cash they're obviously making, there just isn't anything about that presentation that isn't totally absurd and harmless. And the casting of Will Ferrell as the Mattel CEO, of course, plays into that. It it becomes clear immediately that it doesn't matter what the company name is, we're gonna settle into, oh, this is this is a cartoon corporation. Right. Well let me put it let me put it this way, Adam, because I agree with you. I've seen mm-hmm. those claims as well that this is some sort of anti-capitalist, you know, purely right. feminist manifesto. And and just imagine this. What would the Barbie look like if it was directed by, say, sorry to bother you's Boots Riley? Right. What would it look like if, if this was directed by Women Talking's Sarah Polly? Then yeah. we're discussing, we're probably discussing those message type movies that I referenced earlier, and they may be even more brilliant than this one. <laughs> they might be. The point is, this is not what we're getting here. I think no. it takes jabs, and I think it, it, does circle around these concerns smartly but yeah we're not we're not getting something as biting as those two filmmakers might offer no gerwig is definitely walking the art versus commerce line in a way that we wouldn't expect those filmmakers to do but it's also not i'll acknowledge an either or thing variety reported i saw an article that the mattel ceo flew out at one point to the set because he was concerned about a scene in the movie being too off-brand for Barbie. Now, I don't know if that scene has been revealed or people know it. I didn't find anything about it. We could probably speculate about which one it is. But if that's the case, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, I'll tell you, Gerwig did get to keep her vision, and the CEO left the set agreeing with her and Robbie and didn't, I guess, force her to take it out or whatever remedy there would be. But clearly she's pushing some buttons on that front. On the feminism side. I didn't find anything particularly radical about its agenda. The The content of the big speech given mm. by America Ferreira's character, while totally truthful, was something I've seen and heard expressed in almost identical forms over the years so that it wasn't this revelatory moment that I wanted it to be, or I think the the movie kind of needed it to be. I also think that the script doesn't do quite enough with Ferrara and Greenblatt and their relationship and, and some of the messiness of that, which also seems like it could be real fertile ground to mine in this movie, really truthful ground to mine in this movie. It It all resolved for me a little too neatly. But then that speech is happening in a movie that a lot of young women and men who haven't heard those ideas expressed before are going to be confronted with probably for the first time. And hell, even Ben Shapiro, you know, deigned to make a 40 plus minute video about how terrible and man-hating the movie is. So again, clearly she is pushing some buttons, even if I agree with you that that does not seem to be the endeavor of the the movie. And And truly the success of the movie for me is in the humor. It might take a little bit to get there as I'll get into for me, but it does get there. Well, let me touch on that in regards to that speech you mentioned that Ferrara gives, which I agree, you know, truthful stuff in there. She delivers it with a bunch of verve and spirit, 
good performance, but it is on the nose. It's sentimental. It's, yeah, for many people, me included, you as well, familiar. And you touched on the comedy. There's the difference. I think Barbie makes the points that that speech makes much more deftly Mm. in its comic touches. Mm -hmm. And just one example, which comes near the beginning, is when... Robbie's stereotypical Barbie realizes that her feet have gone flat and she vomits plastic in response. That's kind of her convulsive response to suddenly not being perfect. I think that in imagery and timing and humor says a good deal of what Ferrara says later in the speech. It just does it through comedy. So I think as long as Barbie is making these points comedically, It hits home. And maybe the choice was included to put the speech in there for the reason you said. Let's this is I'm thinking of another segment of the audience now. I want to speak directly to them, maybe a younger segment. That's possible. I do think it's a weak point in the film, especially because it had done the same thing so well previously through those other tools. Mm -hmm. As you know, and our producer Sam knows, because I did share it with you via Slack, the impetus for me sharing this was that I had just seen the trailer, not the teaser, but I had seen the trailer for the first time. I was watching it, obviously, before another movie. I wouldn't normally seek those things out. So I I was a captive audience, and I'm watching this trailer. I do need to say just in case there are new people listening who aren't aware of my appreciation for Greta Gerwig, Lady Bird and Little Women are among my favorite films of the last decade. I really do think she's probably capable of doing anything. So I had high hopes that she would she would pull this off. But when I saw that trailer, it was fine. It wasn't doing anything to excite me about the film. And also I was trying to tell myself, this is why you don't pay a lot of attention to trailers. But we get to the end of it, the one I saw anyway, and it's that beach you off clash between Gosling and Simu Liu. Oh, looks like this beach was a little too much beach for you, Ken. If I wasn't severely injured, I would beach you off right now, Ken. I'll beach off with you any day, Ken. Hold my ice cream, Ken. All right, Ken, you're on. Let's beach off. Anyone who wants to beach him off has to beach me off first. I will beach both of you off at the same time. But you don't even know how to beach yourself off. How are you going to beach oh, both of us off? It doesn't make I sense. Can. You can Why are you beach yourself off? You're going to beach Come both on, of us off? Beach. Nobody's going to beach anyone off. I was kind of hoping it would only appear in the trailer and actually get cut from the movie. What? The, the, yeah, I like the beach stuff generally when Gosling delivers it. Something about that bit. Again, I'm just speaking to my experience watching it in the trailer anyway, right? Okay. Is that the joke? the joke is dumb. But it's also 20 to 30 seconds long and felt to me like it was 20 to 30 minutes. And I was shaking my head thinking, okay, if the movie is going to be filled with those types of punny jokes that feel interminable, this is going to be a really tough sit. I hope this was an aberration. And the movie at first, and it contains that scene, but the movie at first for me did kind of feel that way. I thought the dance party was as wonderfully realized in terms of its production design as it was, I felt like it was a bit of a slog. And that record scratch moment when she asks if anybody ever thinks about death, not only did I not really think it was funny, it felt to me like the Saturday Night Live version of this movie. Like if they were going to do a skit about Barbie, it's existential dread Barbie, you know, and she's going to, she's going to have this moment where she says that at a dance party. So it didn't really work for me where it all changed was maybe about 20, 30 minutes in, Gerwig satire and the comedic chops of Robbie and especially Gosling fell into perfect rhythm once Barbie and Ken 
left the candy-colored comforts of Barbie Land, and oh, Ken man. discovers Ken discovers the patriarchy. Oh. That's when that's when it really all came together for me, and did what you were saying it does, Josh. It sounds like it did it for you more thoroughly, but it it made those points or explored those points, but did it in a way through the comedy. Gosling does have all the funniest lines and reactions in the movie. And that's not just praise of Ryan Gosling. That's praise of the writing, of course, partly by Greta Gerwig. And it's the direction. It's the sensibility. It's giving him that space to be that Ken on screen. But Gosling is starting to convince me that he's a comedic genius. He's, he's batting a thousand in this movie. There's not a single moment of screen time that he wastes. It's every single smile, gesture, stunned face, line reading, vocal performance. It was so good. And that includes every single time he said the phrase, Mojo Dojo Casa House. Great. Okay. Brewski Brews. Never got tired of it. The way he sings Matchbox 20's Push. Oh my God. I was dying. I mean, my kids were looking at me like, all what's the wrong with you? All yeah, the kids. All the kids. I in. know, I know, but it's especially the the intonation and the the way he sings it, the the kind of faux Rob Thomas thing he does is is what makes that extra funny. It's just all comic gold, but of course it all it all serves the story too. And that includes, yeah, as well. I'm just Ken. And that entire sequence is some of the movie's best stuff. So I'm excited. I have to say, I'm sure you're like this as well. I'm excited to download the Barbie soundtrack. I think I'm just Ken's probably my jam of the summer. I mean, I, I need what I see on the screen to go with it. I think it's mm. all of a piece. I have to come to the defense of the first 20 minutes of this movie. I'll, I'll get to Gosling, but he doesn't get all the best lines because Barbie's the one who says, nobody's going to beach anyone off. I mean, <laughs> that's yeah. why you, that's why you repeat the beach gag so many times mm. so that you're Didn't setting her up for Didn't that. No. And, you know, I was going to say, this might just be a difference in our senses of humor. I, uh-huh. you know, I love jokes that are kind of beaten to death. Um, but, but the fact that you liked the repeated brewski brews and mm. the Mojo Dojo Casa houses, yes. I mean, it's the same strategy there. So I don't mm. know, man, that I was in from the beginning and again, a repetitive joke perhaps, but when all the Barbies who are all named Barbie say hi Barbie to each other with Barbie wave, I mean, it just captures so many things besides being funny, the hermetic nature of this world, the lack of identity that they are not self-aware enough to be aware of. That's very funny, as well as having thematic and narrative implications as well. Gosling's great. How about Simu Liu, who's mm. just absolutely... <laughs> he's fine. And no, he's, <laughs> he's he fine. is so much better than fine. He's a perfect okay. foil for Gosling. And his athleticism in the dance sequences, which we get early on, is fantastic. Lizzo's song, when, when Barbie says that line that I didn't think was a record scratch, okay, maybe it's obvious, but um, about death. And then notice the next time we hear Lizzo's song, Pink. And the lyrics switch where she's spelling out pink and K is for, and there's that pause, death. <laughs> it's, I mean, I think this is all working of a piece. 
and is incredibly funny from the get-go. But yes, I agree with you. Gosling almost steals this movie, and I feel okay saying that, and I should probably rephrase the stealing, the use of the word stealing, because I think it's of a piece with what Gerwig is offer and maybe more interested than solving the problem of mm-hmm. Barbie. I think she's more interested in pointing out the problems of patriarchy. Absolutely. Or, That's or what just I mean making, by serving the story. Yeah. Yeah. Making fun of those problems, ma- ma- making fun of patriarchy's dopiest forms of expression. And that is where Beach Ken <laughs> comes in. And I also liked when he discovers the patriarchy in L.A., doesn't take him long, pretty much just has to like walk about 10 feet and he's starting to best, realize best part what, of the film. what's going on here. I, I really disagree. I liked Barbie Land. I, <laughs> I mean, those the scenes of going to L.A. are fine and they're necessary and they move the story along. But then once we get back to Barbie Land and I agree with that as well. Ken it's has turned it into the patriarchy. I and mean, what he's turned it into yeah. so many jabs, right. which I'm not going to say that I'm just laughing because uh, there's no way I would be like that. Adam, you had to tell me the Godfather jab hit home because of I, course. I felt that a little bit. Of right? course it did. Yeah, it had to. And look, I love I love how defensive you are about the fact that I think the first 20 minutes and some of the plot mechanics, but generally the first 20 minutes are a little clunky. It gets it gets better, though. It definitely gets better. One of the things that I really appreciate upon the return to Barbie land or one of the things that resonated with me in terms of the satirical element of this movie. This is the, the part that I haven't really seen anybody bring up. So I'm curious for your take on it in terms of being, I suppose, overtly political. How about the fact that one of the things the Ken's decide to do, one of the first things, once they establish the patriarchy with Barbie being gone, with Barbie being gone is they start to work to take away the constitutional rights of the women. Yes. Yes. They change or they start to make the effort to change the constitution to reorient it around them and to cement or to codify the power that they are now asserting and the women in their brainwashed state essentially are going to let them get away with that. And Mm -hmm. they have to reassert themselves at the end and take back the power. And I don't think I have to spell out the political (laughs) parallels to that right now in our country, Josh. It's interesting that that part is maybe the most subversive part of the film. And again, I haven't seen a lot of people talk about it, but I also haven't sought out a ton of commentary. I don't know about you. Yeah, I I know. I, I haven't. Honestly, I was waiting until our talk to read too much. Uh, so I haven't seen if that's been picked up on. But I think you're right. It's definitely there. It has to be. It has to be pointed. And it's interesting. Also, that's a crucial element, as you said, of reclaiming their rights in Barbie land, too. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's a completely Fair reading. The other thing I wanted to touch on, and maybe this is one reason why I did like the the first 20 to 30 minutes so much, is I could just watch and sit and simmer in this production design and the visual scheme that is going on here. These eye-popping life-size reproductions of Barbie play sets, the accessories. I mean, so much humor is gotten out of that as well, besides it just being amazing to look at. And how about that montage, the traveling montage, when she and Ken go to L.A., and it's almost as if it's taking place on a stage. These are very 
theatrical tableaus. They're riding a snowmobile, clinging to a spaceship. This is all in the trailer, too. And I loved the the tactileness of that. It was like it was like a pop-up storybook we got. And I know that Lady Bird and I know Little Women have their visual qualities, unique and artistic visual qualities. But man, this is taking place in a different stylistic universe, including Gerwig taking on, you know, significant musical numbers that Mm -hmm. I feel like she pulls off incredibly well. Yeah, I agree with that. I still am bristling a little bit at all the people who are emphatically saying that this is so much more ambitious than Lady Bird or Little Women. I can see that with Lady Bird, which is by its very nature, a a small movie. Little Women... (laughs) I think is another I think is another story. And while I agree with you completely that it's dramatically different stylistically working in a completely different register and has some elements that we haven't seen from her before, I don't know that it makes it that much more ambitious, but we can get into the semantics of ambition another time. The fact is we are seeing from Gerwig the ability to work across those different styles and by the end of this film, I was convinced that any fears I had from that trailer were mostly unfounded and that she really can do anything. Okay, so so if there's a beach party at the end, are you going to stick around or are you are you going to go home? <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I I may have had enough of the beach. I like I like the fighting on the beach. <laughs> I thought that I thought that was pretty brilliant. I'm going to so I'm going to assert my my masculinity here and talk about the <laughs> Okay, there <laughs> the you go. fighting. That scene was <laughs> was magic, but I'm sorry. Sam's just going to have to play it here. It's at the very end of the trailer. There is no better moment in this movie than Gosling talking to a woman doctor and her saying, No, I won't let you do just one appendectomy. But I'm a man. But not a doctor. Can I talk to a doctor? You are talking to a doctor. Can I need a clicky pen? No. A sharp thing? No. There he is. Doctor! Somebody get security. He's great. I mean... He does make, he's on the screen a lot, but you're right. Every moment counts. He makes the most out of it. The slide, there's a slow slide down the hood of a car Mm -hmm. at one point. (laughs) It's slow motion without using slow motion. Exactly. I mean, it's it's so unnecessary for the scene, but it makes the scene when he does it. So he's just incredible. Barbie is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Every visit. He doesn't want to go. Your children need stability, and at the moment, we haven't seen enough. What more do you need to see? Not part of the Barbenheimer phenomenon, but hopefully a beneficiary of the renewed enthusiasm to go to the cinema, Josh. That was the trailer for Earth Mama, a new film that opened in Chicago last weekend. It is currently out in limited release. You caught up with it. I think you're going to recommend it, maybe even recommend it for the Golden Brick shortlist. Yeah, let's put it on there. It is the feature debut from writer-director Savannah Leaf, and it's not one of these stylistically surprising debuts at the surface when you're first just watching it, something like, you know, Skinamarink, which I recommended at the very beginning of this year, where the form is very much at the forefront. But this is um, very confident and it has a contemplative tone. And eventually you start to see the way, especially visually, Leaf is weaving in um, some very idiosyncratic elements. What's unique to me about this movie, Adam, is 
the way it works as an empathetic film. And we talk about the term so much Ebert's, you know, famous line about movies being empathy machines. And this is a movie that at first I thought is really testing it. And then I realized, no, it's just going about it a different way. Let me tell you a little bit about the story to give you an idea what I mean. But it centers on a 24 year old mother named Gia played by newcomer Tia Namor. Um, she is, Gia is trying to reclaim her two younger children from the foster care system She's also pregnant, expecting a third child, and she's working a job at a strip mall photography studio while taking all these classes so that the court will allow her to have her children back. And so you might think right away, you're, you know, the story makes you automatically sympathetic to her, and this could be framed in a way where all the odds are against her and we're immediately rooting for her. But what we get in the film's framing and the performance from Namor is a woman who is very sullen. Um, she passive aggressively comes into these meetings and does not participate. Um, she returns, um, conversation with sullen stares. There's a moment with a social worker where she kind of slaps the paperwork being handed her out of the worker's hands. And so it's really challenging us to say, um, does this woman in this position need to do something to earn our empathy or does she automatically have it? In some way. And I started to pick up on that. This comes back to the filmmaking. The title Earth Mama suggests this, but this is a movie that's very attuned to the natural world. Um, often the camera will find the leaves of trees or we'll get a cutaway to a forest. And there's a wonderful transition shot where we have some greenery on screen and then we transition to Gia in her photo studio, just standing in thought before this fake forest backdrop. So all of this kind of puts us more in the mind of this woman whose maternal experience inside is the same, no matter what she is doing outside of that or what's happening to her outside of that. And I may not be explaining this well, but it was my experience of the movie is suddenly realizing, okay, she doesn't have to be sweet. She doesn't have to be sympathetic. She doesn't have to successfully jump through these governmental hoops to earn our attention and eventually our empathy. I think it's a really, I think that's a really risky approach for a film to take. Um, and it's, impressively achieved in my mind uh, by both the performer here, the newcomer uh, who I mentioned, Tia Namor, and Savannah Leaf as a writer-director. So yeah, not going to get a lot of attention in the week of Barbenheimer, but if you're looking for something a little differently paced and it's playing near you, I know in Chicago it opened very limitedly last weekend and is expanding a bit this next weekend. I really encourage you to check it out. It's the second movie that's come out this year so far that deals with characters dealing with the foster care system that was a thousand and one starring Tayana Taylor both seem to have gotten good reactions and I'm curious about both I'll confess as someone who has experience with the foster care system and foster children I think maybe I've been a little bit reticent without really knowing anything about the films or their plots or the characters just knowing that there's been part of me that has hesitated. I'm not even sure I can articulate why, Josh. It's not as yeah. if my experience is so heavy that I can't fathom taking on someone else's experience or having to have that sense of empathy. I definitely could, but it certainly wouldn't feel like as much of an escape. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I definitely thought of you guys while watching this. And I think for me, I can imagine it would be that you know, objectivity is a misnomer when we talk about film criticism, but 
I can imagine um, being concerned about achieving any sort of distance from the material to really find a way that um, takes in the film as just a film. I imagine that would be difficult. Earth Mama is out now from A24. If you see it, we would love to hear your thoughts. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week here on Film Spotting, we are starting a new Film Spotting marathon. It's time. We try to do two of these per year. Typically, we wrapped up our Sight and Sound Top 100 Blind Spots marathon maybe six weeks or so ago, and now it is time, Josh, to embark on African cinema. This is one that was ultimately voted on by and discussed with the Film Spotting Advisory Board. That's a tier of the Film Spotting family. And of all the candidates, African cinema is the one that emerged. And some of the guidance we got was not actually trying to put it in a neat box and say, oh, we're only going to watch films from a certain period of time or only focus on contemporary African cinema. There was a sense of really wanted to get into what are considered to be, and this is always tricky territory to, to wade into, but try to find the films that really feel like the classics of that genre or that region in this case. So we think we've done a pretty good job. We have five films here. We did have to consider how easy it is to come by some of these titles. And the reason why we're talking about it here, making sure people are very aware is we do want to start this next week. And that first film in the marathon, Cairo Station from the late 1950s, I think 58, Josh, was recently on Netflix. And now it's departed. And the only way to see it is via Amazon Prime, but with a free trial to Fandor. And I know that's a barrier, and we apologize, but we think it's crucial that we keep this film in the marathon, and hopefully most people who are interested can give that trial a go and watch Cairo Station. Whether or not you continue that trial, of course, is completely up to you, but we tried to consider a range of films across decades from the 50s up until the present day. And we looked at parts of Africa as well in terms of Mali, Zambia, Senegal, all in the mix. Yeah. I think when your your global blind spot is this big, it does make sense to take that expansive approach and really recognize this is the beginning for us, right? This is a starting point for mm -hmm. African cinema. I know for me, Adam, I mean, I have blind spots all around the globe in terms of filmmakers I need to see. But I remember it might have been last year, at the end of last year, when Letterboxd puts out, um, you know, your year-end review, your personal year-end review, and they'll map the films where they are from that you've seen really since you've been logging on Letterboxd. And, man, it was glaring for me. There was maybe one or two spots on the continent of Africa where a film had been that I had seen. Otherwise, nothing. Complete blank. So I've been excited to rectify that with this marathon. We hope that you will follow along, that you'll do your homework, watch these films. It won't feel like homework, I promise. You can be part of these conversations. Send us your feedback. We might feature that feedback on air. You can see the full African Cinema Marathon lineup at filmspotting.net slash marathons or just click on the marathons link right at the top of the page. Also next week, we'll take a detour into some midsummer horror, not to be confused with Midsommar horror, Josh. There are a couple horror movies out this weekend, Disney's Haunted Mansion and Talk to Me. I don't know if Haunted Mansion is on your to-do list, but I know you've already seen Talk to Me and we're yes. using this occasion to 
do a little tie-in with your book, which is out now, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies. We're going to do our top five jump scares. I'm already regretting this top five. I put something out on social media today just asking Mm. for people's favorites. And of course, they're responding not only with ones that maybe weren't top of mind for me that I've forgotten that it scared me, but generally with a GIF as well. And so I'm just like suddenly... My timeline frightens me all over again. I mean, great, <laughs> great suggestions to consider for my list, but I don't know if I really needed that in the middle of the day. But I think this is one people are going to have fun with, if that's any indication. So, yeah, let us know what your favorite jump scares are so we can consider them for next week's list. I think this is a top five that is fairly obvious. It's a little bit surprising that it took us this long to get to it, especially when you consider that we've done a lot of horror-related top fives mm-hmm. in the past. We've done childhood movie scares. We've done horror performances. I mean, there are six or seven at least horror-related top fives that we've done. We had not gone into the realm of jump scares yet, and I haven't looked at any of those gifts because I don't know if I'm prepared for this top five, and I'm really not prepared for what our producer Sam thinks he got me to agree to on our last <laughs> oh boy. production meeting. Here it comes. He's backing call, out. Where, you know, there isn't a transcript, but in my memory, <laughs> when he said, Adam, you really should be sure to watch a new movie, a very modern horror film, one that has gotten some good buzz, but that is a blind spot for you in advance of this top five list and paranormal activity was thrown yes. out. Sam took that as my tacit agreement that I was then going to watch Paranormal Activity in advance of this list. I I don't know if that's the case, but he says if I do, he'll do it with me. Yes. And my impression was you guys were setting up like a watch party somehow. I don't Mm. know if this is on Netflix or where you were going to do this together. I don't know about that. Is what I left that me. Well, you know, to to virtually (laughs) hold each other's hands. That would be that would be awkward. But (laughs) but maybe maybe a good idea, Josh. We'll see. Also, next week, we will share some poll results from the current film spotting poll, which is related. We're asking you to choose between four movies, and all you know is that they're a type of horror movie, also that they're rated R. So they're going to be serious horror. So which would you choose? A movie about cults, a movie about ghosts, home invasion, or demonic possession. You can vote in that poll. We'll share the results next week. Also leave us a comment at filmspotting.net. Also wanted to remind you that this week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it is part two of their Playtime double feature, and they'll be talking about the new theater camp. Previously, they discussed Christopher Guest's Waiting for Guffman, so they'll get into the commonalities between those two films on this week's show, as well as share their thoughts about theater camp. Your Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. And you can get new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find more information at nextpictureshow.net. We would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate or review us over on Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform that allows ratings and reviews. It's been great to see so many new ones come in, hear from listeners who have been part of the show for such a long time, Josh. And of course, there's another way you can support us, which is by becoming a member of the Film Spotting family. You get to listen early and ad-free. You get a weekly newsletter and you get a monthly bonus show. We just had some fun, painful fun, 
for me anyway, with the <laughs> the Barbenheimer draft, a Sam Van Holgren monstrous creation. Deranged idea. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, but I'll just say I knew I was going to be in trouble picking second and I was going to have a real Sophie's choice there at two. I had it. I don't know that I made the right choice, hence it being a Sophie's choice. And I guess listeners on the whole must think I failed because if you look at the early poll results, who won the Barbenheimer draft? I mean, I don't, I definitely don't always win a poll, Josh, but I don't usually lose by this much. Sam's got 46% of the vote just ahead of you with 41. I actually thought you'd take it, but once people listen, they may understand why some people are really smitten with Sam's list. Mm -hmm. They are not smitten with my list. I have 13% of the vote. E, yikes. Yeah, I, I think we, we don't want to spoil it, but Sam made a choice. Let's just say that. Yes, he did. And it's, it seems to be working for him. Just for those who don't know, basically here, we had to choose. We had to draft from the filmographies of Greta Gerwig and Christopher Nolan. And we did throw in the films that Gerwig co-wrote with Noah Baumbach. So yeah, we each took a turn one at a time, um, picking one of those filmmakers' movies to be on our team. Sam's choices so far seem to be the right ones. If you would like to hear that show and all other bonus shows, plus get access to the Film Spotting Archive, or maybe even become part of the Film Spotting Advisory Board and help us get to choose our marathons, weigh in on those topics filmspottingfamily.com. Time now for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks back, we massacred this scene. Oh, Hamlet. Where is Polonius? At supper. At supper? Where? Not where he eats, but where he's eaten. Certain convocation of politic worms are eaten at him. We fat all creatures else to fat us. We fat ourselves for maggots. Your fat king and your lean beggar is but variable service. Two dishes, but to one table. That's the end. Where is Polonius? In heaven. Sent thither to see. If your messenger find him not there, seek him in the other place yourself. That was Ethan Hawke and Kyle MacLachlan in 2000's Hamlet, adapted from the Shakespeare play, of course, and directed by Michael Almereda. We got this feedback from longtime listener, the playwright, David L. Williams in Belfont, PA. He says, this version is a terrific transposing of the text to turn of the millennium New York City, and the score by Carter Burwell is some of his best non-Cone Brothers work. Hawk is, shockingly, the youngest person to play Hamlet on screen, 27 when it was filmed, hmm. and it's the only Hamlet adaptation I've seen that pairs Hamlet's obvious youth with his indecision, a great hidden gem of a movie. I haven't seen it since it came out. On 2000, and that, that famous scene, the to-be-or-not-to-be seen, or infamous to-be-or-not-to-be-seen that plays out in a blockbuster video. Blockbuster, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure I watched Michael Almereta's Hamlet by renting it at a blockbuster. That's how far back this movie there you go. goes. You can reach in, Josh, and pick out a winner. If you were one of those people who knew it, but for whatever reason said no, I'm not going to enter this week. I don't have time or you forgot about it. You really missed your chance at finally getting <laughs> a film spotting t-shirt or 
tote bag, the odds were in your favor. You can count the number of entries we got, Josh, almost on one hand, Mm. almost on one hand. And multiple of those entries thought it was Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. Wow. So they weren't even totally correct. But then again, in fairness, we didn't really do anything in the performance. Yeah, I just we chose to distinguish them. I just take this all as disparaging of my performance. So thanks a lot, everyone. Maybe so. We do have a winner. Reach in and announce it. That winner is Kevin Harris from West Bloomfield, Michigan. Congratulations, Kevin. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with that T-shirt or tote. Now you understand the scene. You're not sure if you still love Keith, but you're offering yourself to him in order to save the planet. Okay, Jeff, right up here. Now we're starting here. Uh-huh. And up okay. and roll center. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. I think the tie-in will be fairly obvious to listeners, Josh. In fact, I think the title will end up being pretty obvious to most listeners, even if we are going to take out that first name. I think they'll get it. Probably, which is good. A bounce back from last time. I was going to say, We're looking I think, for some more entries. I think Sam's trying to redeem himself <laughs> after the we're, Hamlet pick. We're also, you know, I'm going to take a bit of stage direction from Sam. He doesn't always give us this, but he had one note uh-huh. that um, I'm going to take him up on. What do you So have? that when this goes awry, I can blame him. So what do you have? I, is that it a involves pen? a prop. It involves a prop. <laughs> I really wish everyone could see what I'm about to see this this should be good you start it off i'm going to give you the action are you ready um hang on have you ever had a cigar in your life uh it was maybe like i think it lasted like six seconds mm, okay sense memory josh here we go and action <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen in the movie do you recall what Clemenceau once said about the war? Uh, no, I don't think I do, sir. He said war was too important to be left to the generals. When he said that 50 years ago, he might have been right. But today, war is too important to be left to politicians. They have neither the time, the training, or the inclination for strategic thought. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and purify all of our precious bodily fluids. And, and seen. Okay, so what did we learn? We learned that either Sam <sighs> should never be a director or you can't be taught how to act. Because that completely backfired. And I'm going to beat our listeners to it, at least expressing it out loud. Okay. It took me a while. It took me at least halfway through that to finally get it. But I got it. You sound nothing like the character in the scene. You do sound like David Lynch acting as Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Oh, which I suppose in and of itself is kind of impressive. I thought you were going with Fablemans, his, uh, you know... Nope, nope. There's some FDR in there. I learned, yeah, I, w- I wasn't low enough. I wasn't low enough, but I blame that on Not the pen rough in my enough. Mouth. I also learned that um, don't try to substitute a cigar with two pens. I thought that might help because it ah. would be bigger. You know, 
instead the one kept falling out of my mouth and oh, then there was even more saliva mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, it's too bad we don't do second takes with Massacre Theater. Well, if somehow you still know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, August 7th, and we will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means. If the Nazis have a bomb. They have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. On to part two of Barbenheimer, Christopher Nolan's 12th feature, Oppenheimer. So many places, Josh, that we could start this conversation. We get here ostensibly a biopic. We have Killian Murphy's Robert Oppenheimer, architect of the U.S. Atomic Program. We see him as a college student, a gifted but clumsy and apparently bad at math college student, and... We do see him as an older man being feted for his past achievements. Nolan is a filmmaker who has had some success reimagining genres. You could say he did it with the superhero movie and the Dark Knight, with the war movie and Dunkirk. Does he pull that off here? Well, I, yeah, yeah, to a degree. I don't think it's as masterful of a superhero movie as the Dark Knight or as masterful of a war movie as Dunkirk. In terms of being a biopic, but it's definitely a more interesting than average biopic while still being a Christopher Nolan picture in, for the most Mm -hmm. part, the right ways. And uh, I have a feeling I'm probably a little lower on this than most people in terms of enthusiasm, just seeing some of those letterbox ratings roll in. And so I'm hoping you're higher on it than me. I definitely am. Okay. And can solve the very obvious, you know, the first sort of thing that people who aren't over the moon for Oppenheimer are probably going to say coming out of it. I hope you can hmm. help me resolve that. But I want to start with what is great about this. And um, it is the way Nolan uses all the prowess the big movie-making prowess that we've come to recognize him for, to think of him as, and projecting that onto a very intimate, personal, interior moral crisis. And I think that's what this movie manages spectacularly, is to make us feel, in its middle section in particular, what this world-shaking, cataclysmic development not only meant for the world— But meant for this one man Mm -hmm. who led and was not entirely, but at the head of the responsibility for this occurrence that reoriented mankind's, humankind's place in the universe, right? Um, And I think the fact that this movie manages to be as 
visually engaging as an average Nolan picture while still managing to do that. That's not to say all his, that all his other movies were missing this, you know, one of my favorite inception, I think has very personal emotional tones to it. Um, but in this particular way, I think that's what I liked Oppenheimer the best is it didn't lose Nolan's filmmaking prowess in exploring this intimate moral question. Hmm. Yeah. I think that that is a strength of the movie for sure. I think it's built into every, fiber of the movie. I'll probably touch on some of that as well. But to go back to the biopic notion, it's not just ostensibly a biopic. It's a great man biopic, a great troubled man biopic, because naturally greatness doesn't come without some trouble. The internal and external conflicts are always what seem to drive the greatness. And if Nolan had just told this in a relatively straightforward manner, which for some reason is what I expected... Mm. I, I was I was still excited by that. I'd still want to watch this material as written and directed by Christopher Nolan. Of course, after about 10 minutes, when you realize what the movie is and that this isn't just a, a prelude, this is the style and the form in which this movie is going to take, you go, oh, how could I be so naive? This is this is a filmmaker who not only has successfully reimagined other types of films, but he's obsessed with time as yeah. a metaphysical concept and filmmaking construct. And what's the subject here? It's not the man, Robert J. Oppenheimer, or just the man, Robert J. Oppenheimer. It is Robert J. Oppenheimer, whose work would change the course of human history, as the movie tells us, rightfully so, and whose legacy is one that we're still wrestling with, as I alluded to in the Barbie setup, he's also a man, and this is where particularly what you said comes into play because of the way Nolan aligns us with Murphy's performance and Oppenheimer. He's also a man who sees and experiences the world in ripples and raindrops and shards of broken glass yeah. every day. But he sees that same movement and those patterns in the cosmic. So he's someone who's seeing the smallest part of the picture and seemingly the whole picture and its possibilities simultaneously, or at least its potential possibilities, because as he constantly reminds us, he is a theoretical physicist after all. So what's a filmmaker to do with all that? Befitting his paradigm-shifting protagonist, Nolan so audaciously merges form and content that he completely upends the great man biopic. He, he wants to tell the necessary parts of the story, but he wants to tell the whole story. And how do you portray that swirling anxiety and all the wrestling with all of the complexities of not just the science, but the morality of the science? And Nolan seems here to want to consider it in its totality, to weave it all together. And part of that is the structure, getting two timelines. They're, they're demarcated. One is fission and one is fusion. One's in color, one's in black and white. In the black and white, this is the cabinet approval process for Louis Strauss, someone who I did not know, as portrayed by Robert Downey Jr. And in that timeline, Oppenheimer is absent, physically absent, but he's the central figure, right? So we have those two, but Josh, we don't just move between an intercut between those two timelines. Within Fission, we jump around. Yeah. So the movie isn't building towards what most biopics would build towards, the dropping of the bomb, the event that made Oppenheimer, there's an implicit inevitability about that. And within the, 
the fission timeline to go with the cabinet approval process. We have this hearing that's taking place to decide whether or not Oppenheimer should keep his security clearance. This is happening, obviously, after the the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, some years after, as we're now full on into, you know, McCarthyism and the Cold War. The Cold War. Those elements add on to what was already there from the very beginning for any viewer watching this movie and for what Nolan is is seeking to do, which is it turns the whole thing into an inquiry. It turns yeah. the whole affair into a judgment. Now, I think that just like you were saying with Barbie, to some extent, there's there's no one answer. There is no one solution to the problem that is Oppenheimer right. and what he did. And I can't say this is the best review I've read of Oppenheimer because it's the only review I've read of Oppenheimer, but I do strongly recommend people read Alyssa Wilkinson's review on Vox, 1,500 words that is as eloquent as it can possibly be and also does what great criticism should do, which is to expand on the film and enhance the ideas of the film, not just tell you what's what's good or bad about it. And she at one point says – and she's praising the film. She loves it. The movie hasn't entirely figured him out, and history hasn't either, but there's no doubt he's a figure of towering importance. Okay, the last part is is obvious. This is the thing. There is no figuring out Oppenheimer. It, it's the human impulse to want to make sense of this and to put a man like Oppenheimer into one of those black and white boxes. And I, I actually think, and I think Nolan understands this, the more complex the situation is, the more murky it is, the stronger our desire to judge and to seek that clarity. And again, I just think Nolan fundamentally understands the impossibility of that and tries to portray that impossibility and all of those complexities on screen. Yeah. Alyssa's great. So I will have to check out that review. And I think this is the reason this is so powerful of an experience to know this, the impossibility of this question is because it's not just Oppenheimer's question. It's not just our question looking back on history. It's our question within ourselves saying, mm -hmm. what would we do? It's your question. It's my question. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another achievement of this movie is managing, and maybe the structure is part of this as you're describing, managing to not just have this be an Oppenheimer issue for him and worry about his struggle, but to capture the expansiveness of this and know that what we're really asking here is just because, in this case, fill in the blank, an atomic bomb can be developed, should it? But it could be anything else. Just because blank can be developed, should it? Why are we pursuing such things? What do we do with such things, such awesome power? Those are the bigger questions the movie is asking, and Oppenheimer is really just a way into that. Now, back to the intimacy. I don't know if a movie has used an actor's face and eyes right. as importantly as this does since Joaquin Phoenix in Paul Thomas Anderson's in The, the Master. Master. It did not take me long. As a matter of fact, even in the trailers, I think that's when it came to mind. And and I, but it's carried through in the movie itself. I thought maybe in the trailers, like, man, they're really playing up his face here. And it's fascinating, uh, a face that's deserving it. Uh, but surely this isn't, uh, you know, going to be all that the movie is. Eh, it's a good 
chunk of the movie and it's to the movie's credit Mm -hmm. because those eyes are incredible and they do so many things and the camera work, Nolan working again here with Hoyt Van Hoytema, knowing how to use a close-up in the early scenes of a young Oppenheimer. Think about how hungry they are for knowledge, Adam. These are devouring eyes. He doesn't have time for anything. There is a very funny sex scene with Florence Pugh, who I didn't even realize was in this, to be honest with you, until I was watching the movie. But a funny sex scene that turns when knowledge becomes involved. That's Mm -hmm. all I'm going to say. And then Oppenheimer gets a little more into it. (laughs) I think this is just the perfect way. She's playing a a character who is an occasional lover of his and also a psychiatrist, I believe. Um, And this is just another way to show that this is a, a man whose mind devours information and knowledge. And we see that in those eyes. And then what happens when they have achieved what they're after at Los Alamos, when the Manhattan Project has become a success, all of a sudden the torment enters those eyes and it enters the face. And again, it's not, um, it doesn't follow a linear line as you described. We're jumping back and forth, which makes it all the more remarkable because Mm -hmm. we see the young eyes and then we'll get a flash of the old eyes, right? And I'm sure makeup is involved and that sort of artistry as well. But there is a point where the reality of what they have done on the Manhattan Project settles onto Oppenheimer's face and it doesn't leave for the rest of his life as we see in the movie. And the way the filmmakers capture that and Murphy delivers it is another one of the remarkable achievements of the film. Yeah, I think it is one of the other bold strokes of this film beyond the nonlinear approach. It's that emphasis on close-ups in that IMAX camera really capturing, I think you're right, the hunger and then also the psychological toll that all of his work ultimately takes on him. And there's another big part of this, which is in tandem with those close-ups, and that's really tethering almost exclusively the events of this film to Oppenheimer and his perspective. And I want to talk about that some more, but before I do, I kind of want to know, Josh, what your what your hang-up is. Um, I mean, it's not exactly one thing. Um, it, it's the boring question. It's the question of the Strauss stuff. Um mm just never got into it and appreciate, you know, on its own, it's compelling. It's framed by Christopher Nolan. It's, you know, in an immaculate black and white cinematography. I think Robert Downey Jr. Jr. is very good in these scenes as Strauss. It was a wonder to see Alden Ehrenreich, who plays a Strauss aide, get a chance to be charismatic again on the screen. I feel like it's been a while. Maybe I've missed some things. So it's not that I had a problem with that in itself, but it does take up a considerable part of the running time. And it does involve, as you described, um, Oppenheimer's reputation. Mm -hmm. And I understand thematic connections with the Mm -hmm. story proper. There are a number of thematic connections. I'm not trying to claim that it comes out of nowhere. I think one of the most interesting ones is I think there's a distinction being made between pursuing knowledge for knowledge's sake. Yes. And pursuing it for the sake of power. And and power. That is the key and question. Power. And, and the key and, issue, for sure. Yeah, and I think that's all interesting. So I see that that's there. Maybe mm-hmm. there are more things that I'm missing. But it also, to me, I could just never get invested in Strauss's fate in this mm. trial. And we get so much of it. Honestly, Adam, I didn't even really care that much about how the trial affected Oppenheimer's post-war reputation. Those are all important historical things, and they are connected to the cataclysmic 
questions this movie was asking. But for me, the gap between the two of them was so wide. Um, I didn't mind jumping around in time. Yeah. It's the gap was so wide that I wished there was less or maybe not any of any of mm. the Strauss stuff. Oh, imagine it'd be such a lesser movie without it. Okay, but let me just say this. Imagine if some of that this thing runs three hours. We get a lot of Strauss. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we got more of Florence Pugh's character. Imagine if we got more of Emily okay. Blunt's well, character that's a, that's as a his separate wife. Issue. Yeah. No, it's that, not that, a separate you, issue. Well, it is it is because you don't have, well, let me don't finish. have to be exclusive. Let me finish. Okay. You're div- you're dividing three hours of story time. And but it's so not you're like making choice. three hours as like my target runtime. Well, he told the that's story he wanted to tell. That's what we're left with. What I'm trying to say is that imagine if this movie had also explored what these questions meant for Pew's character, who's certainly thinking about them as well, what they meant for Blunt's character, Oppenheimer's wife, who moves with her child, who we get the sense she doesn't even really want to be a mother. We get little hints. She moves to Los Alamos. She knows what they're working on. She's wrestling with these questions too. Um, and there would be ways for Nolan to figure out how to play with time there as well. I just think this superstructure of the Strauss thing, while having thematic connections, I f- it feels more like they're too mess with time. It gives him a chance to do a little mm. sleight of hand with how the trial ends, which for he sure. loves, right? And it's fun. It's fun. But um, I just felt... I could not get as invested in that without having a huge issue with what we see on the same par as I was invested with the other sections of the film. Yeah. I mean, we just had a very different experience with that section. I mean, the one part we didn't differ on is, nor was I invested in whether or not he was going to get cabinet approval. And here for listeners, we might get into some spoiler territory. So might be worth fast forwarding or waiting until you've, you've seen the movie. I, I didn't care, and I don't. I don't think that's really something that Nolan himself is invested in. It's more tied to the reason, one of the reasons why it worked for me, which I'll, I'll get to in a moment. I do just want to emphasize, though, how differently I see the way you're connecting this to the Blunt and Pew issue. I've got that in my notes too. I wish that Florence Pugh had more to do. I wish that her character was built out more. I wish Emily Blunt had more to do. I wish her character was built out more. And it isn't just because I think women should have more screen time in Christopher Nolan films, or I think that those really talented actresses should get to showcase that talent. Both are, are fine reasons. But no, it's because, of, it's because of the story and what I think it would add to the story, especially when you consider the impact, the, the way Nolan does give time to both of those characters, significant time to those characters later in the film in in a key scene each, or at least in a key scene in the way it impacts Oppenheimer. And in both cases, Josh, I felt like, man, if I just had, it was one of those one more scene instances. Yeah, with both I think that's what made me think of this comparison. With both right. characters. If I just had one more really great scene between those two women individually and and Killian Murphy, it it would have just bolstered this movie but again i don't think that has anything to do with the runtime or the straw sequence i don't think that nolan is looking at this with his stopwatch and saying well if i'm going to include this i gotta i gotta cut that i don't know what decisions he was making but i think he probably could have accomplished all of it for me 
the big part of it is the thematic resonance that you said. So I'm not going to try to explain to you what it is. It just didn't matter to you as much as it did for me or didn't didn't hit you on that that kind of intellectual level. And I will add that that's one of the things that in her piece, Alyssa gets into really explicitly articulating the dichotomy there in power and how Nolan's exploring it. So go read her. I'm not going to attempt that. It goes back to me, Josh, to one thing I've said and one thing I haven't. It's, it's the way he turns the entire film into this fascinating, super layered inquiry. Now you can say, I got enough of that inquiry with the hearing. That was enough for me. It just, it expanded that whole world so much more to have this other investigation of Oppenheimer's life and work that he's not even a part of. And through the lens of someone who, who seems initially anyway, to be completely on his side. And then we see some different motivations come out and, and it, it, tells the story of of these men it tells the story of these decisions of that moral murkiness it it expands that i'll just say that again you're talking about the the tr- the pseudo trial about his security clearance yeah that but then add on to that this strauss layer the security okay. clearance one isn't enough for me i mean i think mm. it would have still i think worked, I, yeah see i think that but, was enough but i love i love that we get this added layer of complexity. The other thing I like about it, and here's where the sleight of hand comes in and where I really appreciate it, less so as sleight of hand like, oh, I pulled the rug out from under you, you know, he's not getting approved or he is, or or you think you like him and you don't. It's it's more tied to the fact that as part of this inquiry, the black and white part is actually detached. Connected but detached. It's detached in that it's in black and white which kind of hints at, you know, in a playful way that, oh, this is more, this is maybe more factual. This is more objective, right? It's in black and white than this, this subjective part all told from, from the perspective of Oppenheimer. It's in black and white. Oppenheimer himself isn't part of it, though, as I said, he's the central figure. So what happens is, as part of this inquiry, the Robert Downey Jr. character actually becomes, or at least did for me, become a sort of audience surrogate. I thought I was thinking about the life of Oppenheimer and knowing because of the way he cuts around, Nolan cuts around, that there are now these attacks on him. I thought, oh, this is going to be this, this voice of reason, this wise friend who is actually going to kind of put in perspective who Oppenheimer really was and the tough decisions he had to make and give us this new perspective. And then what does Nolan do? He pulls the rug out from under us and gives us the true audience surrogate, the true viewer, the person who's actually sitting there hearing both stories, Alden Ehrenreich, hearing all the parts of the story, taking in Oppenheimer the man, taking in Strauss the man, and having to form his own opinion about the nature of power and the decisions these men make. That's where it all came together for me. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, like I said, it's its not that I have any complaints with 
the particular choices made during those sections. I, I just think it was the overall necessity of those sections as a superstructure. And it kind of goes back to where we started the conversation, right? You know, Nolan is not going to make a biopic that is straightforward, linear, hitting the beats, childhood trauma. This is why this person is who they are. Grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Very grateful for that. Um, I would rather have these sorts of complications any day than getting something like that. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's a matter of, you know, a, a filmmaker. I was thinking about it in terms of Asteroid City, right? Is like it, the question we had with that one was what does the theatrical framework, the fact that we're watching this television documentary about the production mm-hmm. of a play bring? And, um, you know, we both had our ideas and our questions about that. And it's we're getting two filmmakers here who almost I wonder if it's like they're too smart for us. And are they ever too smart for themselves? <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just like they they need these layers of complications to be that invested, perhaps, in a project at this stage in their career. What, what did you say at the top? This is 11th film? 12th. 12th film? That's incredible. Like, it makes sense. We did the overview on this show. But, man, that is that is a lot of brilliant, complicated movies. And so I completely understand why he would make the choice to add complications to this one. I think we just differ on, on, um, you know, what those bring to us as viewers. Sure. But did we differ on Asteroid City in that respect? Because I think that that's another example of that framing device completely heightening that film and my appreciation for it. Yeah, I don't. I'm it's similar a good in both cases. It's a good question. Um, definitely, obviously, if anyone heard the review and, and anything I've written, about Asteroid City Sense, it, it it bothers me far less there, and it might just be my affinity for the filmmaker and the style and what I'm getting out of the surface pleasures of those additional complicating elements compared to what I get out of the ones here in Oppenheimer. Maybe that's the difference. It's a good question I'll have to think about further. Um, and the other thing is, you know, Asteroid City is more, I feel despite your point about this being about a mystery is more a question. That movie is more a question movie about questions um, than Oppenheimer is, even though I agree it does not mean to be just as Barbie does not mean to be definitive about the man Oppenheimer at all. Sometimes here to close this out, I'll save some of my thoughts on the perspective here and that being tied to Oppenheimer. I think there are going to be other chances to talk about this movie. Sometimes listeners write in complaining, Josh, that they don't understand how we didn't comment on a certain thing about a film like that performance. And I always say, well, if we we didn't comment on it, that's just because that's where the conversation went and we didn't really have anything to add. But thinking about those listeners, let's play just a little bit of a game. I don't even have a list in front of me. I just decided this in the moment. One of the, I think, fun aspects of this film, and I've seen some things online, I think a lot of people are having fun with it, is watching all of the faces who pop up in this film. Yeah, You said you didn't even know Florence Pugh was in it. I didn't either until maybe a day before the movie. And then you watch it and every scene, it seems like some We haven't known even brought up Matt Damon yet. Who is, is showing up. We haven't brought up Matt Damon. He's got Damon. a big part. He's got a he's got a big part. And actually, this is this is a good one to bring up for me to then throw at you which which faces you really like to see on screen here, because Sam and I were talking, we're just in agreement on this. I love Damon. I might have even voted for him 
10 years ago in our DiCaprio versus Damon poll. Okay, that's how much I like Matt Damon as an actor. He does stand out here a little bit for me. He's Mm. not giving a bad performance. He is not. But everyone else, and I do sometimes hate this term, but everyone else, I can't think of a better one, to some extent feels like they're disappearing into their character. That's what Sam said, and I had the same exact feeling, right? They, They are being transformed. I feel like I've never seen Emily Blunt look like this before. I've never seen Killian Murphy look like this before. And I mean everything about their beings on screen, right? Not just their their hair and makeup or whatever. I was nervous about Damon based on the trailer because there's that part where he gets really angry with someone and he says, this is the most important thing that's happened in the history of humanity yeah. or whatever. And in the trailer, out of context- He's not good in the trailer. I'm like, oh, that's, that's Matt Damon just being Matt Damon. Like, I've seen him do that when he- you know, does an appearance on where he's yelling at Jimmy Kimmel or whatever, like that, that really stood out to me within the entire film. It wasn't the sore thumb. It was for me in the trailer, but overall Damon is still very much Matt Damon in this film, very capable actor, but he's Matt Damon and he's different than everyone else. He was the only one I maybe had a little bit of an issue with in that way, though. I will say I also really, really struggled. I actually struggled more with Rami Malek. Oh, interesting. But who did you like? Yeah, I don't have strong Malik thoughts. I like Damon. I'm a Damon defender. And I went into this with the same concerns you did, but it was interesting. I think at that point, the movie needed a little Damon because um, we have mostly been sticking with, it jumps around in time, but we have not seen him yet. It's mostly been sticking with Murphy as Oppenheimer, right? And we've already touched on the intensity of that character. I feel like this may be sacrilege. The Murphy performance does not really come alive until he has Damon to play off of. And there's the moment where Damon is the general who has been tasked with really overseeing the Manhattan project. And he hires Oppenheimer as the lead scientist. There's that moment where, um, Damon says to, to Murphy, you know, I don't know why I'd pick you. I'm paraphrasing, you know, you're, you're a womanizer. You're full of hubris. You're a, you know, you're full of yourself. And I'm thinking he is. He is. He is because I, I've gotten the intensity, that internal intensity from him. Hmm. But otherwise, up until that point, like this wasn't a very um, charismatic is the wrong word, but it wasn't a very outwardly engaging performance. It wasn't the performance no. of a womanizer or someone who was even that full of themselves. I mean, yes, there's a moment where he he one ups another academic in the faculty lounge. I, I I imagine that happens over coffee every day. I don't know. It isn't until Damon shows up and kind of gives him first of all, Damon brings a little bit of movie star charisma, which yes, stands out, but it's okay. We can have that even in our important intellectual movies. And I think he gives Murphy something to play off against. I really like their scenes together. I feel like Murphy's Oppenheimer comes alive as a human a little more in those sequences than not that he's bad in the other ones, but it's another dimension that we don't get elsewhere in the film. I'll agree with you that there is a really nice give and take between them that probably comes out in part because of their different approaches to those characters and playing very different men, of course, more than anything else. I'll disagree with you on whether or not Killian Murphy was pulling off all those things. Damon said, you know, we haven't seen him, I suppose, be quote unquote a womanizer. He is also a guy, though, who before that we see go to a party and he's immediately getting laid and, you know, with one of the most attractive women at the party, like at the party, Josh, it, it seemed like to me. It happens right? on the screen. Yes. It doesn't really happen in the performance. And maybe this is related to yeah. what I said about 
you know, his need for knowledge during the sex scene until he gets really invested in that sequence. But I, for me, all that mattered is it's not a conventional charisma, meaning sure, maybe gregarious or, or whatever, or very affable. He is not that at all. He's the opposite of that type of charisma where people are drawn into him. And I think Killian Murphy completely pulls that off where he is an enigma and he's, He's he's just human enough, and there's certainly enough humanity in him. I think that's a key strength of the performance in the film. There's enough humanity and empathy and warmth in him that people see that layer to him. But I think people are really drawn to him, and they're trying to figure him out just as we're trying to figure him out. And you understand why a guy like that character, the the General Groves character, the Damon plays, can say— I think I'm paraphrasing here too. something like, I don't know why, you know, in that moment, I don't know why I picked you. And what, what is his response? Something like, because you need me. I mean, as long as he can get away with being needed in the way an ultra brilliant man can, there's a certain inherent charisma to that. Again, that I think people are drawn to. And I think he, he really captures that. I, I did enjoy. Wow. The, I suppose, intensity, quiet intensity and, What's the right word for what? Let's come up with it together. What's the right word for what Casey Affleck is doing in his Oh, my goodness. Scene? Wow. Al- almost demonic. I don't know. Uh, what's the right <laughs> what adjective I love for what about he's doing? it is he's introduced voice first. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so good at this. Debbie is always better at this than me when, when we're watching, you know, animated films, immediately identifying whose voice it is. If you don't know beforehand, it took me maybe 10 seconds, but it was before his face was revealed. And that was a very terrifying 10 seconds because I knew this is one of those performers who is not always playing someone who's creepy or, you know, makes you nervous. Mm -hmm. Even when he's sympathetic characters, playing a sympathetic character, that element is there in the performance. And so I'm feeling all of that. I almost wish they didn't ever show his face to keep me in that place because it would have fit the character he plays here perfectly. Mm hmm. How about the return of Josh Hartnett? I could not I've, believe I've, that was him. I've never enjoyed on screen, really, I have to say. And I, I don't want to just kind of pick on maybe what's perceived as low-hanging fruit. I don't know that anyone ever thought Josh Hartnett was, you know, the next Leo DiCaprio or whatever. I never had anything against him, but I didn't ever think, oh, I got to tune into the next Josh Hartnett performance. And he's really good here. Yeah. And, and it's more a matter for me, you know, Maybe he's been doing a ton of stuff and I've just lost track of his career, Mm -hmm. but because I've not seen him recently thinking pretty much to the end of the film, that's, is that Josh Hartnett? Is that, Uh could that be Josh Hartnett? So it was a little distracting for me, but yeah, yeah, I think he's good. We're, we're in the weeds, but we've, one thing we're going to get killed on is not talking about the Trinity sequence, the actual test of the atomic bomb at Los Alamos. We could probably have done a whole conversation on that. I just want to acknowledge that for me. You know, as with most people, probably it's a highlight of the film. Is it? I actually. I, I guess I've been kind of in the dark on this, Josh. I didn't know that that was like. No, I'm the just guessing. People are talking. I, about. I'm okay. just guessing because it seems like it's structured that way within the movie, where it comes, how it's led to, and and what it means. Again, maybe for the things that I connected with about this movie, were less about the meta structure that Nolan was creating and more about the subject matter itself and the implications for. The characters, but also all of us. And I think that's so captured in this moment. It's the turning point moment for Oppenheimer because it's his moment of triumph and his moment of downfall. And we see that 
in the performance, again, in Murphy's eyes, the way they transfer, pretty much what we get are two things. I've only seen it once. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think we basically get these images of the awesome, awful, consuming fire, notably created by Nolan and Van Hoytma without any computer-generated imagery. We get those images, and we get Murphy's astonished eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, for me, that's the the key element of the entire movie is what that means for, what that success means for him and how it's dawning on him. I don't know that he fully thought about that, that he fully asked himself this deep moral question. We see him wave it away when other scientists bring it up to him until he's successful. And that's the point where it sinks in and his face changes. He, it, it goes back to the pursuit of knowledge and it complicates with the idea of the pursuit of power for him. He is so consumed with the pursuit of achieving this scientific first He's smart enough. He knows in the back of his mind what it means, but he chooses to prioritize achievement over implication. And when he realizes he succeeded, then suddenly that shifts and implication has jumped ahead of achievement for Mm -hmm. him and his entire interior understanding of who he is, I think, shifts. And so I I, I do think it's the key sequence of the film, and I think it's brilliantly constructed. It is a key sequence, and it's it's very well constructed. I I disagree with the idea that the movie shows him waving off those moral concerns. We see him engaging in that quite often in the film, and I think he takes it very seriously. Oh, I he's, think too, he's considering it, but there are there are moments well, just, where both the Branagh character and um, there's another scientist, and I'm I'm skipping on uh, the name. This cast is so vast, mm-hmm. but it is. Um, it's, oh, Benny Safdie's Benny Safdie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who raises it. And he's kind of, he, yes, he acknowledges it, but I don't think it like, I don't think he's willing to engage with it until the science comes first. That, I'll put it that okay. way. The science well, no, always comes first for mm, him. See, I, I disagree. I think that that is way reducing Oppenheimer here as a figure, as someone who just sees it that way. Yes, of course. I think the achievement. Not and just, the, not just. Okay. It's what he's prioritizing. It may be what he's prioritizing, but I think you have to put in there, and I'm not going to try to break down the percentage of the pie here, but I'm saying there are much higher proportions of the pie than you're saying that include things not only of the the moral cost, or I should say the human cost of it and the actual death toll, but also things like he's weighing very much. He expresses that he believes that this is not only going to end the war. That's the line everybody yep, sells. That's his justification. But – but you can't say that that isn't a valid reason, okay? Sure. Or that that's only that's well, only why is he prioritizing? It at the forefront? You can't say you're only prioritizing science if you are weighing that I'm going to help end a war and I think I have a duty to my country and I'm going to save a lot of American lives. That's important too. It's a good he way for him to thinks, justify it to himself. Sure, of course it is. But but how do you how do you weigh that? How does even Oppenheimer weigh that? Is that's one of the, the questions. struggle of the film. The movie is saying it is a struggle that there isn't a clear way. I think you're trying to make it a little too clear in, no, in which one he favors. That's not how I described it at all. I'm just marking this as a point of transition for him. All it's those complications point, the are there the before yes. and after. This is an incredible sequence because it is making it hit home for we're him. Not, we're not the choice he's about, made. We're not disagreeing about the sequence. The 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 fact is. What you expressed is something the movie expresses, which is he has a line, a great line at one point where he says something like another reason why he's actually considering it, of course, right, is that he doesn't think they'll understand. First of all, he thinks this also will end war. 
He misguidedly thinks this might end war as right. we know it once a weapon of this capability is presented to the world. And he expresses the truth, which is he doesn't think people will know the power of it and the destructive force of it until they see it. Yeah. And the moment you're talking about is the moment where he sees it. Yes. Where he finally processes it. Yeah, that that's all true. But let's let's give Oppenheimer some credit. He's just not this like ego mad guy who's like science. That is I'm going to do it. That is I'm going to be the guy. I, that's not how I describe it at all. I want to make sure no one takes it that way. I want to make sure no one takes well, it. Well, thank way. you for clarifying. I, I think I'm I'm pretty confident no one did. But yes, I, I did not There's mean just that a, at all. But but there are a lot of layers to it, Josh. A lot of layers to what he's thinking about and concerned with that I think make him make him. An interesting, not only an interesting character, but someone who is showing a real regard for humanity. Of course, it's the wrestling that I started with. You know, it's that personal moral wrestling that I started with that I thought was interesting about this whole movie. I think that's the heart of it. Uh, I think it's what does get lost in the machinations of the Strauss segments. And I think it's what is captured in that turning point of the Trinity sequence. Oppenheimer is currently playing in wide release. If you see the film and agree or disagree, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that's our show. All right. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us asking about horror movies, specifically the kind of horror movie you find most terrifying. You can find that at filmspotting.net. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Filmspotting is listener supported. You can join the Filmspotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and support us. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. Plus, you'll get a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. In the archive available to Film Spotting family members, you can find reviews of Christopher Nolan films going back to 2005's Batman Begins, plus our Nolan Oeuvre review with discussions of all of Nolan's films going back to the beginning, 1999's following. We also have reviews of Greta Gerwig's Little Women and Lady Bird, along with her contributions to Noah Baumbach's filmography, Francis Ha and Mistress America. That's filmspottingfamily.com. Out in limited release this weekend, you can also see Christian Petzold's A Fire. Petzold, the director of Phoenix, Transit, and Undine. He's working again with Paula Beer. I've seen A Fire and do recommend it, a movie about <laughs> a different type of destructive force, the the sort of destructive emotional force of a solipsistic artist is what we get in A Fire. Worth checking out if you have the chance. Kokomo City, a movie I really want to see. Our friend over at Letterboxd, Mitchell Beaupre, caught it at Sundance and said, a simple idea, put a camera on four black trans sex workers and let them tell their stories. The result, a bold and beautiful expression of love for womanhood, transness, blackness, and the intersecting communities between them. A full meal in 73 minutes, Mitchell says. In wide release, you can see Haunted Mansion, directed by Justin Simeon, who made Dear White People and Bad Hair. That stars Lakeith Stanfield, Rosario Dawson, Owen Wilson, and Tiffany Haddish. And Talk to Me is out. A group of friends discover how to conjure spirits using an embalmed hand. I say generally just keep away from yeah. an embalmed hand. It's I mean, a rule that's... of thumb. I've lived my life by it. It's worked for me so far. Good advice. I'll say more about this next week, but I do recommend it. And it has a couple of jump scares that really get you to in connection with our top five list next week. Yeah, it will be our top five jump scares. We would love to hear your picks. Any that really freaked you out that you want to make sure we consider, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. 
Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show would not go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.